The opinions expressed in the Palace of Glittering Delights are mine and mine alone. No one would be stupid enough to hold them. The things discussed in the Palace of Glittering Delights may lead to spoilers if you have not seen the topic of today's episode. There may also be occasional ranting and swearing. Don't say I didn't warn you. A long time ago, I sent Marvel Comics a pitch for a series of books called Web Spinners, Spider-Man Through the Decades. Clearly inspired, I say inspired, I mean ripped off, by the then-current In The Trades from DC Comics, Superman in the 40s, Batman in the 80s, that kind of thing, I felt that if anyone deserved this treatment, it was the ever-amazing Spider-Man. Marvel didn't take me up on it, but Aaron Hendley mentioned just such a book in a post on Facebook, and this got the wheels turning again. What stories would I put in such a series of books? So far I've covered the 60s, the 70s and the 80s, so now it's the turn of the 1990s. The 90s, the era of grunge, dance and Britpop, OTT action movies, and a general feeling that everything was going to be okay. In comics, a sea change was occurring. For the first time since the 60s, a few new upstart independent comics companies like Dark Horse and Image Comics were challenging Marvel for the top spot, as behind-the-scenes shenanigans would bring Marvel Comics to its knees as bankruptcy loomed. To counter this, Marvel would just publish more and more comics based around their most successful characters and run them into the ground. Spider-Man alone would have five continuous monthly series at one point. The perennial Amazing, the sister book Spectacular, the baby of the bunch, Web of, the quarterly, Spider-Man Unlimited, the eponymous Spider-Man, flashback series Untold Tales, and spin-off Spider-Girl and Spider-Man 2099, plus assorted mini-series and specials. To make things even more confusing, the comics would be rebranded, renamed, and, as the decade ended, rebooted. The 90s started out just fine, with David Michelinie and Todd McFarlane continuing to make Amazing Spider-Man a best-selling book. Artist McFarlane would leave in the early part of the decade, and Eric Larson would take over, later to be replaced by Mark Bagley. Web of Spider-Man would flounder even more when Jerry Conway left for the second time, and Spectacular would overtake Amazing as the best Spider-Man comic on the stands for a short while, when writer J.M.D. Mathis would craft a year's worth of intelligent and heart-rending stories, a marked contrast to some of the dumber stuff happening in the other comics. New characters and villains were introduced. Peter Parker's marriage to Mary Jane would actually prove both a milestone and a millstone around Marvel's neck. And, of course, the infamous Clone Saga would commence, carry on, continue to carry on, and then finally end, before carrying on a bit more, and then ending again. This time for real. Contrary to popular belief, the Clone Saga started strong, but would quickly outstay its welcome after initial sales success, led to a prolonged and overly complicated mess that saw Peter Parker replaced as Spider-Man by Peter Parker? But we're getting ahead of ourselves. This was the hardest decade so far to pick stories from, largely because it is, by far, the decade that hits the lowest lows, making genuine quality harder to come by. 
It's also the decade with the most amount of content. This content led to fewer stories being told in one issue, with not only multi-part narratives in one series, but extended, almost continuous stories being told across all of the Spider-Man line, with the events of one series impacting upon the other. As such, this mythical edition of Web Spinners would not be as eclectic as the others, largely because Marvel had also learned to save the biggest developments and shocking moments for anniversary issues. These issues could be billed as collector's items, on which they could slap a gimmick cover and gouge the reader with a higher price point. Thus, for my part, I had to make some hard choices here. My personal favourite Spider-Man titles of the 90s were Untold Tales of Spider-Man and Spider-Girl, but as these were, respectively, a book set in the past and an alternative history series, I elected not to include them although I had shortlisted Untold Tales of Spider-Man issue minus one and the What If issue that first featured Spider-Girl, in actuality, the daughter of Peter and Mary Jane. I also nixed the Spider-Man 2099 issue I had chosen to allow this collection, which was already well over ten issues, most of which were double-sized, to focus purely on Peter and the core Spider-Man comics. This was also the book where I found myself picking stories that I couldn't genuinely say I enjoyed, but were important and showed the way the character was changing over the decade. To that end, the first pick for the book would be Amazing Spider-Man issue 361, published in early 1992 and written by David Michelini with art by Mark Bagley. This is the story that introduced Carnage, real name Cletus Cassidy, a serial killer who is infected by the alien symbiote, who then, thanks to his fractured mind, becomes the ultimate killing machine. With Peter Parker unable to deal with Carnage alone, he is forced to call Venom in for help. Carnage, for some inexplicable reason, became incredibly popular in the 90s, but to me summed up everything bad about the decade. He's a one-note character who exists solely to chalk up a massive body count of innocent civilians. Unlike the Joker, upon whom Carnage is clearly based, he has no redeeming qualities, no character to speak of, and no real innovation to him. He's a horror movie slasher in comics form. He exists only to make Venom more palatable, and to turn the latter into an anti-hero, just because he's not quite as bad as that other guy. It is an important story, though, not only for introducing Carnage, but for showing off the talents of Mark Bagley. Bagley would, for many, become one of the definitive Spider-Man artists of the 90s and will be featured quite heavily in this collection. But because Bagley can actually draw, seeing him receive acclaim made for a nice change. Subplot-wise, there's some nice cracks showing in the marriage. Mary Jane thinks Peter shouldn't even get involved in this Carnage mess, and she's not wrong. Someone like Carnage really needs the big guns, like Thor, although I wouldn't have been averse to seeing the Punisher just put a bullet between his eyes and be done with it. I'd only include the first issue in this collection, as it's a decent introduction to the character, but also because the story gets sillier and sillier as it goes along. In part three, for example, Carnage kills anyone who comes into his orbit, except J. Jonah Jameson, who he only kidnaps, because Jonah is protected by plot armour. For our purposes, issue 361 will suffice. As all this mindless carnage, pun intended, was exploding over an amazing Spider-Man, on the stands at almost the same time was Spectacular Spider-Man issue 189. 
Writer J.M. DeMathis has had a great run on Marvel team up in the 80s, but had made his name over at DC, writing The Justice League. He returned to Marvel and Spider-Man, and was this time given a main book. With artist Sal Buscema, DeMathis countered the excess of the other Spider-Man titles by crafting beautiful, touching stories rooted in character rather than spectacle. Needless to say, it didn't sell as well, but as Amazing became more and more aimed at lovers of gore and shock, Spectacular Spider-Man became more character-based. This issue, The Osborne Legacy, sees a relapsed Harry Osborne try to convince his family everything is okay, something that's not easy when he's wearing a purple and green Halloween costume. DeMathis plays up something most writers forget when dealing with the Green Goblin, that Peter and Harry have that connection that had to be fabricated between Norman and Peter, and he wheels out the psychological aspects of the characters, emphasising the similarities and differences to good effect. There's a sustained level of tension as well, as Harry keeps teasing just when he's going to tell the world Peter's secret. It's similar in a lot of ways to that great scene between Tom Holland and Michael Keaton in Spider-Man Homecoming. DeMathis and Buscema's entire run is worthy of note, especially in the 90s comics landscape, and this won't be their last appearance, but it's worth inclusion for showing that every now and again, Spider-Man's rogues galley could be as psychologically provocative as Batman's. Just under a year later, J.M. DeMathis and Sal Buscema concluded their deep dive into Harry Osborn's emotional problems with Spectacular Spider-Man issue 200. This issue showcases a major facet of 90s Spider-Man, the death of a major character. As the decade rolled on, it seemed that no one was safe from the Axeman. Well, no one except J. Jonah Jameson, obviously, as Marvel strived desperately to cling on to relevance. This issue was the death of Harry Osborn. Thankfully, unlike the later death of Dr. Octopus, Harry's death was at least well handled, with this touching tale of loss and family. DeMathis had been building up to the final confrontation between Spider-Man and the Green Goblin by playing up the Peter and Harry angle. It works here because, as I just mentioned, Harry and Peter actually had an emotional connection, a connection that also includes Mary Jane and the long-dead Gwen Stacy. DeMathis plays on these prior relationships, so Harry's death doesn't come across as a cheap stunt, rather a natural development occurring from the story. Now we can argue whether killing Harry was ultimately worth it, but at the time... It was a heartfelt story. It's also only in retrospect that we see that the 90s was also the decade of the Green Goblin. As we'll see later. Our next pick, Amazing Spider-Man 375, is here for a few reasons. Number one, the 90s were all about excessive OTT action. And this issue delivers that in spades. The story, entitled The Bride of Venom by David Michelinie and Mark Bagley, doesn't really make a lot of sense if you look at it too closely, but as this was an anniversary issue, published in only 1993, sense isn't required. Merely a foil-embossed cover, an extra-length story, and some backups that set up future events. Reason number two is another 90s mainstay, the spin-off. Now, I know what you're thinking, and you're right, but Andrew, you're thinking, the spin-off isn't new, and you are quite correct. Spin-offs from popular properties had been a thing for a long time, but there seemed to be an inordinate amount of them in the 90s, and this issue and the last are essentially setting up Venom's own miniseries. Reason number three, absolutely ridiculous mystery plots that meandered and went nowhere were a big thing in 90s Spider-Man comics, and this is on full display here, with the reappearance of Peter Parker's parents. 
Even McAlhiney has said that this was editorially mandated and he had no idea where it was going. Reason number four, an extreme makeover of old characters was de rigueur in the 90s and the recipient of that here is Silver Sable's Wild Pack, updated with massive guns, pouches and silly additions to the costumes. They all have big hair, stubble and cigarettes hanging off their bottom lip, including the women. Reason five, Spider-Man was hopelessly out of character in a lot of 90s stories, which I touched upon in my look back at the whole of the Michelinie McFarlane run, but never more so than here, where our guilt-ridden hero, a man who was forged in the fires of indirect action, a man driven by responsibility, lets Venom go with the caveat, you leave me alone, I leave you alone. What rot. In this issue alone, Venom nearly kills yet another policeman. How did Spider-Man think this would end? Still, questionable life choices are stock in trade for Peter Parker, and so this is a notable, if controversial, moment. Amazing Spider-Man 400 is another story to pull at the heartstrings, courtesy of writer James DeMathis, who I'm now only just realising may be the MVP of mid-90s Spider-Man. This is a very hard period of time to single out stories, as all the Spider-Man line of comics was embroiled in what had come to be known as the Clone Saga. For those that are unaware, and in a nutshell, the Clone Saga came about as a response to the success DC Comics had had with some major stories of the time involving Batman and Superman and the feeling at Marvel that a married Spider-Man just wasn't working out. To that end, they brought back the long-thought-dead clone of Peter Parker and revealed this unmarried Peter, who was a little rougher around the edges after his differing life experiences, was the real deal. Clone Peter had been living under the name Ben Riley, no really, and was being primed to take over the series as this issue saw print. It's a cleaning the decks issue, killing off Aunt May and starting to move Peter out of the spotlight. It's an important issue for the death of a major supporting character and it's beautifully written, and if plans had gone forward as hoped a well-realised death. Ben didn't need Aunt May. He'd been without her for five years, and she was all that kept Peter in New York. So from a setup perspective, this all worked as we moved into the era where Ben Riley was about to adopt the webs. The artwork by Mark Bagley is wonderful, and the writing heartfelt and sentimental, but in a good way, not in a saccharine, tear-filled, melodramatic way. It's also worth picking for demonstrated how convoluted the clone saga was becoming, as this issue also features yet another clone of Peter, the Traveller, the Jackal, and various other character dead ends, something the Clone Saga became justly famous for. It's important also in that it's a rare issue in the Clone Saga that actually works as a story in and of itself, although this volume would have to feature numerous text pieces to explain what the hell is happening. We all thought my next pick, Spectacular Spider-Man issue 229, was the end of the Clone Saga, and that's why I'm including it here. We were wrong. Still, an overview of the 90s needs to show that Marvel really wanted to nix the marriage. They felt that Peter was no longer identifiable to a younger audience and that a refresh was needed. To that end, as I just mentioned, they established that Peter was the clone and Ben the real deal. 
as this story establishes. This meant the now heavily pregnant Murray Jane and Peter could move away to raise their child in peace, and Ben could take over as New York's preeminent wall crawler. This was all fine and dandy. And in this issue, writer Tom DeFalco does a good job of showing a Peter Parker on the verge of a nervous breakdown, a man in desperate need of a lifestyle adjustment, and a Murray Jane in desperate need of a change. Peter is cranky and snappy in comparison to Ben, who is flippant and light-hearted, which is a massive role reversal from where they were when Ben was introduced. The 90s also had a tendency to mix up the artists, and this issue has Workhorse Sal Buscema inked by ever-so-scratchy Bill Sienkiewicz, which is an odd combination and a not altogether successful one. The story also has the updated new Lady Octopus, who has been drafted in after Dr. Octopus was unceremonially bumped off. Some funny dialogue from Tom DeFalco, who is an underrated Spider-Man writer who really understood the character. The next two picks are here to represent Ben Riley's stint as Spider-Man and how it could have worked had Marvel cracked the code. See, the main problem with Riley was the name. Marvel could not come up with a way for him to truly take Peter's place in name and status quo, and as such, they were hampered. Ben, with his bleached blonde hair and new life, couldn't interact with the regular supporting cast without them wondering why he was no longer married and had a silly hairdo. Still, the issues he was Spider-Man, such as my first pick, Sensational Spider-Man issue zero, written and drawn by Dan Jurgens, shows his stories to be some of the best in years. Unshackled from continuity, Ultimate Commitment works as if it's a pilot for a new TV show. It sets up Ben, tells us his backstory, and lays out a direction for the future. One of the things Marvel had also struggled with was keeping Peter a hard-luck hero, a suspension of disbelief no one could sustain when he's married to a beautiful and financially successful model. With Ben, there was no such problem. He was broke after five years on the road, had nowhere to live and no life to speak of. The creatives could build him from the ground up. And so they did. Ben gets a job at a coffee shop, a part of the zeitgeist in the 90s thanks to friends, fashions a new costume and finds new people to hang around with, whilst also setting up new villains thanks to another 90s staple, the shadowy bad guy. It promised a new beginning and a fresh start, and is included to show what could have been. Amazing Spider-Man issue 407 picked up the story and showed the difficulty Ben will have wearing the webs. There are five years of life that Peter lived at Spider-Man that Ben is unaware of, such as the Sandman now being a good guy and working for Silver Sable International. The Sandman's development from thuggish bad guy to a man who went straight and then used his powers to earn himself a decent living was one of the better character arcs of the 80s and 90s, showing us a measure of redemption can be attained. Well, until it was all pissed all over, but we'll come to that later. In this issue, Ben must deal with the speculation that he's a new Spider-Man, a truth he can't discuss for fear of dropping Peter and MJ in it, which leads to a clash with the Human Torch. DeFalco and artist Mark Bagley do good work, although the characterisation of Ben feels a little bit off from the previous issue. But together, these two issues show the perils and pitfalls that may befall our hero in the months and years to come had things worked out differently. The story sets up a new Mysterio and further complications to Ben's life, some of which would be resolved and some of which wouldn't, thanks to a massive U-turn on Marvel's part, which I'll discuss in my next issue, Peter Parker, Spider-Man, issue 75. 
This issue was written by Howard Mackey with career best artwork by John Romita Jr. and Scott Hanna. Marvel decided, barely six months into Ben's permanent run as Spider-Man, to reverse the decision and bring back Peter Parker as Spidey. This meant undoing all the good work they'd done, setting up Ben and removing Peter, as well as ridding themselves of Peter and MJ's baby. After all, if a married Peter Parker was a burden, one with a kid would be unthinkable. Mackie wrote a lot of Spider-Man in the 90s, and to be fair, his stories weren't bad. But this issue contains one of the myriad of many problems with his writing. He didn't really give a toss about continuity. A major character moment in this issue has Liz Allen Osborne and Flash Thompson reminisce about the happy times in school together with Harry and Peter, both apparently completely forgetting they didn't go to school with Harry. This is compounded by a further discussion about the college times. Liz didn't go to college with Harry and Flash. Now, if this was just a minor goof in the issue, it would be funny, but it's overshadowed by the main development. This issue is infamous for resurrecting Norman Osborn from the dead and implying that every bad thing that has happened to Peter since issue 122 of Amazing Spider-Man, where Norman was killed, was him manipulating things from behind the scenes. It's incredibly dumb and yet somehow perfect. If we accept that Spider-Man has always been a superhero soap opera crime noir hybrid, then this development is just yet another soap opera conceit alongside the bait and switch and the switch of the bait and the switch that Peter is real and Ben is the clone. It's all wrapped up far too quickly though, with barely a page devoted to the fallout and just casually giving Mary Jane a miscarriage is a cheap move that completely misrepresents the devastation a family can feel after such an enormous event. Disintegrating Ben into dust is also a really lousy way to treat a character that had been given an enormous build-up and who had amassed quite a fan base. Still, we have to include this, not only for it being the resolution of the clone saga, but also for the sheer batshit crazy nature of the story, the revelation of Norman's resurrection, Ben's death, and the loss of the Parker baby. I could have done without the rehash of Amazing Spider-Man issue 33, though. Before we continue, it's a shame here to look back and see that Marvel didn't have the balls to see this through. Imagine a world where, instead of the Ben Riley era as was, Marvel had pushed forward, made Spider-Girl the de facto incontinuity future for Peter and MJ, and instead of having Ben move to New York to try and take over, had instead continued with Amazing Spider-Man, but with a completely new paradigm, instead of just mimicking what had gone before. You could have had Ben leave New York, pursued by Kane. Ben could wander from city to city having adventures, but being forced to move on by his relentless pursuer, all the while trying to find a way to help Kane, and, simultaneously, having flashbacks to his previous five years on the road. It's Highlander meets the fugitive, and I'm telling you, if this had been written by J.M. DeMathis with art by John Romita Jr., it would have been a winner, baby. A surefire hit. But, you know, for all sad words of Tonga Pen, the saddest of these... It might have been. Anyway, following the clone saga, the Spider-Man titles floundered again. Uninspired adventure followed uninspired adventure. Neither bad nor good, just the. 
However, if there was one writer who could make a decent stab at doing something interesting with Norman Osborn's resurrection, it was James DeMathis. DeMathis embraced Norman's return, turning into a master manipulator and having him wreak havoc with barely a whispered word and a twitch of his eyebrow. By the time Spectacular Spider-Man issue 250 saw print in 1997, DeMathis had brought his brand of psychological horror back to Spider-Man and Norman lived to torture Peter Parker and his supporting cast in ever more effective and terrifying ways. If there is a downside to DeMathis' run, it's his over-reliance on daddy issues. This issue alone features Harry's issues with his dad, despite Harry being dead, Flash's issues with his dad, Craven the Hunter's son's issues with his dad, and it's all a tad tiresome. But the meat of the story, Norman's behind-the-scenes twisting of the screws, is taut and well-executed, DeMathis again going for the slow burn, and Peter falling for Norman's tricks and playing right into his hands is well-executed. The art by Luke Ross is quite cartoony, but that's no bad thing, and Citizen Osborne shows there was life in the frankly silly idea of resurrecting Norman. Sadly, this may have been too little, too late. The strip was in the doldrums again, but a new era was just around the corner. And it was kicked off in Amazing Spider-Man 439, written by Tom DeFalco, with art by Raphael Kayana. This issue is, for all intents and purposes, an outlier, and, essentially, the last issue of The Amazing Spider-Man as launched in 1962. Now, yes, in reality, the series lasted two more issues, concluding with issue 441 to be relaunched in one of Marvel's dumbest ever moves with a new number one. See, the fallout to the Clone Saga had left Spider-Man bereft of a direction. The writers and editors had intended that Ben Riley was to be Spider-Man, now and forevermore, but the rapid U-turn meant that the series and the character had been treading water, stuck back where they had been before the Clone Saga began. It was time for another shake-up. This would take the form of a crossover story, The Gathering of the Five, that would ostensibly wrap up the storylines, allowing for an updated retelling of Spider-Man's origins, entitled Chapter One, by acclaimed artist John Byrne. This meant that DeFalco was to wrap up his run on Spider-Man, and he did, with this rather sweet look at the nature of heroism and how history can often be completely wrong. It's as good an example of why history should be constantly revisited and re-evaluated as more evidence is uncovered, and how sometimes painting historical events with a romantic eye isn't necessarily a good thing. Moreover, though, it's just a lovely little story. No big supervillains, no major events, no crossovers, just another examination of who Spider-Man is at his core. Whilst the art is variable, the story itself is nice and quiet after the bombast of the decade so far. As mentioned, though, in 1998, John Byrne was asked to reconceive Spider-Man for the new millennium. He'd revamped the Fantastic Four, relaunched Superman, and gained a bit of a reputation as a Mr. Fix-It over the years for his back-to-basics approach to characters with long publishing histories. So one wonders how it all went so spectacularly wrong with Spider-Man. His 12-issue miniseries reimagining Spider-Man for the 21st century, entitled Chapter One, was awful, missing the point of the original Lee Ditko stories so badly as to make one wonder if Byrne ever read them. Marvel also missed the point. Spider-Man's beginnings were not the problem. It was every decision they'd made since about 1988 that was a real cause for concern. 
Chapter 1 sold well enough that, according to Byrne, Marvel asked for a Chapter 2. But the reaction from the fans was a muted... Meh. Even more of a misstep, though, was the relaunch. Cancelling Amazing Spider-Man, a venerable title, and one of the last in the Marvel line to maintain its original numbering, was as inevitable as it was stupid. Marvel had already ditched long-time titles like The Fantastic Four, The Avengers, Captain America, Daredevil, Iron Man, and others for splashy relaunches with the new number one in a quest for greater sales success. So Spider-Man following suit was a fate to comply. Although I doubt anyone thought it would be as bad as it was. Still... We have to include an issue. It was a big deal at the time and is now a part of the history of the character, even if everything Byrne and his co-writer Howard Mackey did with the characters in this era has, thankfully, long since been forgotten. The purpose of Volume 2 of The Amazing Spider-Man seemed to be undo any and all character development that had been achieved over the past few years, and that informed my choice of issue. Amazing Spider-Man issue 4, written by Howard Mackey, with art by Byrne and Scott Hanna, came out at the beginning of 1999, and sums up this direction perfectly. The issue features the Fantastic Four, characters Byrne has some familiarity with, and centres around the Sandman, protecting a senator as part of his Silver Sable duties. It turns out the Sandman is still a bad guy, undoing over a decade's worth of character growth and revealing that the Thing, who helped Sandman go straight, suspected all along he was a rotten apple and has had him under constant surveillance. Pretty sure that's a breach of Sandman's civil rights. This issue is also included to show Aunt May is also back in the land of the living, as stupid a resurrection as Norman Osborn's, but more pointless, and that at this point in its history, the House of Ideas was more the bungalow of bankruptcy. So there we go. Web Spinners, Spider-Man in the 90s. My picks for the issues that this volume would include. More of a mixed bag, quality-wise, than the previous volumes, but that sums up the decade quite nicely. What I liked about this selection was the mix forms a connective tissue, with storylines threaded throughout, from the clone stuff, Ben Riley, the resurrection of Norman Osborn, the through-thread of the Green Goblin generally, and even the devolution of the Sandman. This volume holds up rather well, I think, as a collection. Sure, this volume would, by necessity, have to be thicker than the others, because even though there are only 12 issues here, eight of them are oversized, and there would have to be more text pieces and historical essays to give context. But that's the point an analysis and overview of the good and the bad. Next time, the final volume in the series, The Naughties. Okay, if you hear scratching in the background, that's the tortoise. I think she's deciding that it's dinner time. Right, let's have a look at the email, should I? Just for today. Okay, our first email is Rob McCarthy. Correcting my statement about Superboy. I presume that this is referring to an email a couple of episodes ago where Rob implied that Superboy never added anything. And indeed it is. I didn't mean Superboy never added anything, says Rob. I meant Superboy was too much like Superman for them to play with the idea of growing up. It was more like Another Earth, where everybody's younger and the city's smaller than Superman when he was a boy. Oh, I get what you say. Right, there was no... It wasn't like Smallville. Superboy never actually showed him 
you know, learning his powers or gaining his powers or whatever. It was just Superman stories in, in different dress, essentially. All right. I get what you're saying. Our next email is from Alan Wright. Web spinners in the 90s. Hi, Andy. What a fun concept for some episodes. Well, thank you very much. Aaron Hendley helped with it, I must confess. As a kid, I owned Superman from the 30s to the 70s. I still do. And Batman from the 30s to the 70s. Loaned to a friend during the Michael Keaton film era, who never returned it. And of course, I have several of the later DC collections that are the direct inspiration for this series. But I do see one big oversight in the 1970s run. Spidey Super Stories. Do you know, Alan, I honestly say I did not even consider Spider-Man Super Stories for this. Because... Uh, it just wasn't on my radar. I never read any of them. I don't even remember if I saw any of them. But anyway, let's have a look at Alan's justification. Based on the kid-friendly live-action Spidey segments on the Electric Company TV show, one of the Electric Company's key writers was Joss Whedon's father, Tom, and some segments also featured Morgan Freeman. The run got the stamp of approval from my parents. They'd gotten a lot of Wortham-esque crap about comics turning you evil back in the 50s. And I remember negotiating with them that as Spider-Man was on the Electric Company, and if I could find a comic based on that version of the character, I'd be allowed to buy it. As I recall, I had no idea that there actually was such a title, but there it was. They relented, and soon it was the gateway drug to more comics buying. As I did not indeed rob a bank at five years old, they soon let me buy the less kiddie versions of superheroes. It was also, just like The Brave and the Bold and Marvel Team-Up, my introduction to many heroes in the Marvel Universe. I noticed a more conscious effort to have more women and minority heroes guest star than Marvel Team-Up did. The Jaws and Star Wars-themed covers of issues 16 and 31 seemed to best homage the movies of the era. But the characters I best remember from the comic series were the cat. Really, it's the later Patsy Walker Hellcat, but the hell part of the name wouldn't fly here. And Ms. Marvel, a.k.a. Carol Danvers, a.k.a. the current Captain Marvel. They both appear in stories from issue 39, and that issue's The Cat and the Cosmic Cube features the infamous Thanos Copter. Surely the Thanos Copter deserves its place in a Spider-Man collection as much as the Spider-Buggy does. Well, you can argue that, but the Thanos Copter actually got a live-action TV appearance in the Loki TV show, whereas the Spider-Buggy, as far as I know, never has. So I'm still going with my choice for that. Or you could go with Spider meets the spoiler from issue one, which adapts the TV episode by Tom Whedon, the aforementioned Joss Whedon's dad. Uh, and he's included the, um, the splash page to that, a very short comic book, Spider in a very short comic book, as seen in the electric comic, Spider-Man meets the spoiler. Is he someone who just, you know, goes around spoiling TV shows for people on three-hour YouTube videos, ranting about cartoons from the 80s? That's just a guess. I, I don't think that he's that. That's excellent, that, actually, Alan. That's a well-argued reasoning for um, including a Spidey super stories in there. Depending on the thickness of the book, maybe, if that's a short one, if that's only a couple of pages, maybe we'd include that as like a, oh, by the way, but, um, no, I'd never read any Spidey Super stories, for whatever reason. Anyway, that about wraps it up for this time. Next time, we'll be covering the Naughties, which is 2000 2010. Uh, just an aside, I want to throw this out there. Does anyone else's copy of Amazing Spider-Man 375, is it printed in the wrong order? Because mine is, which made reading it a bit of a ball. Like, thankfully, it was available digitally. But digitally, it doesn't have the backup strips or the text pieces or anything like that, so... 
Very strange. Anyway, that's about it. Uh, you want to email me in about my selections? Hey, kids, comics at virginmedia.com. You can join in the fun. I'll see you next time for 2000 through 2010, which at the moment is proving quite difficult because I'm leafing through the covers on Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. And it's, sometimes it's the covers that trigger a memory. Oh, yeah, that was a good issue. Oh, what was that one about? And so on and so forth. And my God, the covers in between 2000 and 2010 are just boring. Every single one of them, just a bland shot of our hero web-swinging or clinging to a wall or clinging to a wall and web-swinging. And God, they're boring. And they don't jog any memories whatsoever. So this is probably going to be quite a difficult one. But we'll see how it goes. Take care. See you all next time. Bye-bye.